0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a special edition of Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's good to have you listening. On March 15th, 1965, just days after the shocking violence of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, President Lyndon Johnson stood before Congress, Vice President Hubert Humphrey at his side, and told the American
1: people this. The time of justice has now come. And I tell you that I believe sincerely that no force can hold it back. It is right in the eyes of man and God that it should come. And when it does, I think that day will brighten the lives of every American.
0: It would take months of hard-knuckled tactics and political arm twisting. But on August 6th, 1965, 57 years ago this summer, with Martin Luther King Jr. looking on, Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act.
1: This is a victory for the freedom of the American Negro, but it is also a victory for the freedom of the American nation.
0: Today we're going to examine whether the promise of that landmark legislation still holds all these years later, particularly as the U.S. Supreme Court prepares to take up one case that could upend state election laws and another case that targets a key section of the Voting Rights Act. And we're going to do it with one of the nation's foremost scholars on equity and voting. Carol Anderson is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author of the acclaimed and award-winning book, One Person, No Vote. And she joins us today from Washington, D.C. Professor Anderson, welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. Oh, it's great talking with you, Carrie. Professor, I want to know what you hear and what you were reflecting on as you heard those those um, words from Lyndon Johnson almost 60 years ago. Sadness. Um, sadness that we
2: are still having to fight this hard for the basic right to vote, to be unencumbered by disenfranchising initiatives, um, and to have the power of the federal government believing in the power of the right to vote and seeing just the incredible backsliding and the damage that it is doing to this incredible nation.
0: You hear a lot of optimism and you hear, whether it's projected certainty or it's true certainty from President Johnson there, that we've gone through a time, and we have found, a violent time, a time of disenfranchisement, and we have found the answer in this Voting Rights Act. I know you know it inside and out. Was it constructed in a way that was going to resolve a lot of the things that Lyndon Johnson was talking about and that Americans had witnessed and that black Americans had endured? It was constructed in a way
2: that dealt with the the barriers that, particularly, the Southern states had put up, um, so that you had the pre-clearance provision, which was mm-hmm. landmark. What pre-clearance did was it said that states that had and jurisdictions that had a history of discriminating against its voting population um, would have to get all of its voting policies and laws approved first by the U.S. Department of Justice or by the federal court in D.C. before it could implement that law. Prior to, those racially discriminatory laws were implemented. They continued to disfranchise. Then you had litigation after litigation after litigation to try to remove that barrier from the ballot box. This one um, short-circuited that. Immediately. It was a thing of beauty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it had power. And that is why those that were uh, committed to racial segregation, committed to inequality, committed to disfranchising, committed to second tier citizenship, fought for it, fought hard for it, and and began to work around legal maneuverings to justify the unjustifiable.
0: Correct me if this is not right. Weren't there some voting jurisdictions, maybe some cities, states, who remained under the supervision of preclearance for decades? Is that right? Oh, absolutely, that's right. And and so let's be clear.
2: Um, there is what they call a bailout provision in the Voting Rights Act that says after a certain amount of time, and I'm trying to remember whether it's five years or 10 years, and you don't have, and that jurisdiction doesn't have any uh, discriminatory acts against this voting population, then they are no longer under the preclearance provision. So what that means is all you have to do is not act a fool. For mm-hmm. a small number of years, <laughs> and then you can you don't have to deal with pre-clearance. But the fact that you have had states that were under preclearance for decades tells you the the entrenched um, desire and the entrenched efforts to to try to find ways to block access to the ballot box for significant sections of their population. And there were states and jurisdictions, there were there were jurisdictions, not states, but jurisdictions that had been bailed out. There were those. And then there were those that had been bailed in. So this
0: was a, a vibrant law. And to understand this, again, what you're saying is you're under supervision, preclearance, until you show us that you have done away with these discriminatory Laws that inhibit voting—is that too simplistic, or is that essentially what it was? That's it. That—that that you have done away with it, and you're not trying to implement anymore.
2: It—it—it it, it is so basic. Thou shalt not discriminate. Mm-hmm. And—and <laughs> um, and that basic standard of thou shalt not discriminate was so hard for so many of these states um, that continued to try to maneuver around the 15th amendment that said the state shall not abridge the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And one of the things that the Voting Rights Act did in its 1975, I believe, amendment was to add language discrimination to it um, because there were places where, like, well, you know, if they don't speak English, we can get them that way. Um, and so there was a provision in the Voting Rights Act, in its renewal, that began to take on the issue of discriminating
0: against folks because of language. The U.S. Supreme Court, uh, hmm. is it too strong to say dismantled pre-clearance, how many years ago? Uh, in 2013. <laughs> Okay. Um, what happened? Yeah. Would you say? How how would you describe how that changed things in some states? Ooh. Um, so what happened was there was
2: a county in Alabama, Shelby County. So the case is called Shelby County v. Holder, and in Shelby County they had they were under pre-clearance, but they had begun to annex areas around Calera City, um, and then redrawing. Um, districts for the the city council and they redrew the district so much that they they drew the district in a way that made it impossible for the lone black councilman to win an election they put him in a district that went 70 some percent against obama in in the 2008 election i believe
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So what the Supreme Court did, what the Supreme Court ruled in Shelby County v. Holder was that the Voting Rights Act had um, basically anachronistic, you know, old time standards about what discrimination looked like. John Roberts in his uh, decision said, you know... the the discrimination that required the Voting Rights Act in 65 is no longer viable in the United States. We have black elected officials. We have Hispanic elected officials. Basically, we have crossed the racial Rubicon, is is what that said. Um, And that the Voting Rights Act picked on the South that it targeted the South, it identified the South, and it just basically harassed the South, requiring the South to do things that no other region in the nation had to do. There was just so much wrong with this decision. One, to say that racism was no longer a viable force in the United States ignored the evidence. It ignored the racial vitriol raining down on Obama. It ignored that in 2006 with the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act that the U.S. Department of Justice laid before Congress over 700 proposed changes to voting rights laws that it had blocked from 1982 onwards. So not from 1965, but from 1982, that it had blocked over 700 proposed changes because those changes were racially discriminatory. So how Mm. do you look in 2013 back to 2006? And say, "Oh, we have crossed the racial Rubicon." You can't. And to say that they picked on the South, well, there were other areas in this nation—in California, in Arizona, in New York—that had come under the Voting Rights Act pre-clearance provision because of racial discrimi- discrimination. And it wasn't picking—it like, wasn't picking on the South. It reminds me of when I was a kid, and I would like keep nudging at my brother, elbowing him and finally he popped me and I said, "Mom, <laughs> little's picking on me And she said, "What are you doing to make yourself so pickable?" <laughs> A wise right? woman. <laughs> right she really was. Um, and, and so it's, it's this it's not picking on the South. It's like if you keep discriminating against your population, then the law is there to, to hold you accountable. For that discrimination, and so what you had here was uh, a quest to be not be held accountable. Two hours after Shelby County v. Holder, Texas implemented a racially discriminatory voter ID law. The other states followed soon after with their versions of of basically I call it who let the dogs out um <laughs> because because polling stations were getting shut down overwhelmingly in black and poor communities um, uh, early voting hours were being restricted, so in North Carolina, what you saw one of the things they went after was uh what they call souls to the polls, mm-hmm. which was on those Sundays uh during early voting, after the churches let out, black churches would fill up the bus and then take the congregation over to the polls to vote and You saw North Carolina figuring getting the date on when African Americans voting and removing those days like souls to the polls um, and and it took the Fourth Circuit to say, "Oh, this was a smoking gun." uh mm-hmm. seeing that this was this was so clear how what a targeted hit this was um and and you had the removal of early voting sites so that um and I think it was Guilford County they went from like 22 in North Carolina went from 22 early voting sites to 4 so think wow. about this it's right it's it's like uh, right before a big holiday you go into the grocery store and there's supposed to be 22 lanes open, except there's only four
0: now. And you can imagine <laughs> uh-huh. what those
2: lines look like, right? That's so those, what this is those,
0: doing. Those are all the dominoes that, are, and, and more that fell in yeah. the wake of this decision in 2013. Let me remind listeners here. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Big Books and Bold Ideas. We're talking about the deeper history and the contemporary history of the 1965 Voting Rights Act and we're doing that this summer because it's been 57 years since the act was signed but also because the US Supreme Court are about to take up two more cases that involve the way we vote. One of them comes right at the Voting Rights Act. The other one, we're gonna talk about the nuance of that. But I really wanted to talk with Carol Anderson about this. She's a professor of African-American studies at Emory University. And she wrote the award-winning book, One Person, No Vote. So we're understanding what this act in 1965 was supposed to do What has happened in the 57 years since and what we're looking at in the in the pretty near horizon here for the way we vote okay so professor i want to come right at this with this u.s supreme court case that that they're taking up in the fall and it comes out of north carolina where you've mentioned some of these other laws went into effect after pre-clearance was over there's a lot of nuance to it as i understand it Republican state lawmakers in North Carolina want more control over the way districts are drawn and the way elections are decided. And they want to take that control away from the state courts. Do I have that right? And what are the implications?
2: Uh, The implications are massive. Um, So what you have is that North Carolina drew the state legislature drew a very high gerrymandered a legislative map that overwhelmingly uh, benefited the Republicans. So you want to think about how a state that had been blue or purple it now looks decidedly red. It is because the maps have been drawn that way. And you can draw those maps in a way that privileges land, privileges um, predominantly white districts, and and dilutes the vote of those in the cities and dilutes the votes of the concentrations of african americans and hispanics you can do that the there's incredible uh, map drawing software that really allows uh, map makers to dig down deep um into the analysis and draw those maps with precision and when North Carolina's legislature drew that map, the state court came in and said, Lord, this thing is just wrong. Eight ways to Sunday, wrong. Um, you have We have a standard of one person, one vote. And that comes out of the Baker decision um, in the early 1960s, where you again had states trying to privilege uh, whites over everybody else in, in the power that they had in the state legislature. And so the, when the courts came in and said, Lord, this is wrong, no. And the legislature came back saying, basically, you're not the boss of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You can't tell me what to do. Uh, we have the power via some arcane, twisted legal doctrine, that says that whatever the, the legislature draws up, the state court." cannot come in and review. Now, where that gets m- multiply twisted is that you had in a decision, the Gil v. Whitford decision, where the U.S. Supreme Court punted on um, extreme partisan gerrymandered districts, like up in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. yep. um, that said, look, you know, the feds can't look at this. But you know you've got a, you've got a, a route. That's the state courts. So now you've got a decision that can come down the pike saying, the state courts don't have the right to look at this either. Right. So it entrenches the power of minority rule.
0: I mean, what this essentially, it, it seems that Republicans in North Carolina are claiming, that the US Constitution gives state legislators, not judges, as you've said, not other political entities, dominion over election laws. If that's true, my gosh, the repercussions for 2024 in the presidential election are deep. I, I guess I want to ask how concerned you are that the US Supreme Court, in the makeup that it's in, May look at the arguments of this and say yes that that is indeed what the u s Constitution says uh,
2: I am greatly concerned because one of the things that is clear is that this Supreme Court um, is not bound by precedent, um, that mm-hmm. it is not bound by valid legal theories it just it does what it wants to do ideologically, and this is one of the reasons why um, the the confidence in the court has plummeted um, after the Dobbs decision. Um, public confidence,
0: the, you mean? Yes, yeah.
2: Public confidence mm. um, has just plummeted um, after the the Bruin decision um, it, for um, gun safety laws in New York. After uh, basically saying that. You don't have to be Mirandized. Wow. After saying that even evidence of your innocence cannot get you off of death row. I mean, so you've got a court that is just leaning so far to the right that um, and out of sync with where the American people are overwhelmingly. Um It reminds me, in a way, when I see these decisions, the way that the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1898 Williams decision looked at Mississippi's poll tax and literacy Mm -hmm. test that had decimated and devastated the number of African-American men who were registered to vote. Because remember, women didn't have the right to vote then. And the U.S. Supreme Court looked at that. So it went from 190,000 African-Americans to 8,600 within two years. And the U.S. Supreme Court looked at that and said, no, the poll tax and the literacy test don't violate the 15th Amendment because everybody has to pay the poll tax and everybody has to read. And so it's that kind of glib rationale, uh, rationalizing. Of the and justifying the unjustifiable. As a nation, I, what, we need to be afraid.
0: What I hear, I think, is a subtext in how you're thinking about this is there is a deep unpredictability about how the court may decide, and that unpredictability opens the door to... I mean, these are not inconsequential decisions. These are going to affect the way people live and particularly the way they vote. I mean, we're going to feel this. Each and every American will feel the, the repercussions of this decision. Is that too, too strong?
2: Um, each and every American and this incredible nation will feel the repercussions. So, so it's not too strong at all. Um, so we often think of voting rights as, as dealing with black people. Because Mm -hmm. that has been one of the most visual um, images of what disfranchisement looks like. But when you you think about it, what it does is it begins to send a signal throughout the system that your vote doesn't count. And so you get massive depression of voter turnout uh, because people believe that they have no voice in this democracy in 1942. In the South, in the 42 midterm election, total voter turnout in the poll tax states was 7%. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That is the power of disfranchising. And begin to think about what kind of democracy do you have when the politicians only have to pay attention to 7% of the electorate? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: the Supreme Court also has another case on the docket out of Alabama that goes after, as I, as I understand it, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which mm. prohibits certain voting procedures based on race. And And in my reading, it just to boil it down, it looks like it would make it more difficult for Americans of color to challenge the laws on the basis of discrimination. It would be hard to go to court to say, I feel disenfranchised because, as a voter of color because of this law. What else should, should we understand about this case out of Alabama? The know that uh, earlier on,
2: about two years ago or so, is that the U.S. Supreme Court looked at Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and crafted a whole new architecture to prove discrimination um, that section two is supposed to deal with. And so when we think about what this court is doing, it is creating barriers um, to the ac- access to the ballot box while also when making the, the efforts that people need in order to challenge that discrimination, making that doggone near nigh impossible. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's what we have to understand. So it's like raising the barriers and and making it more difficult to challenge those barriers. When we understand it in that framework, we understand that this is a massive assault on American democracy.
0: I want to ask you about something that people who watch voting patterns and voting laws the way you do seem cautiously optimistic about, and that is the Electoral Count Act. It is not law yet. It clarifies that only a governor, not state legislators, can submit slates of electors, and it fast-tracks judicial review for any kind of challenge to the certification of electors, and it does a number Of other things. It is, uh, I should say, it it doesn't have a smooth path to passage, but it looks like bipartisan. There is some bipartisan support for it. It, I I want to ask this in two ways. Does it address, in your view, some of the most egregious and concerning things that came up in the 2020 election and since, and does it remedy some of the things that you're most concerned about?
2: Uh, I tend to to fall along the line of Mark Elias, um, who is an incredible voting rights litigator and Mm -hmm. Representative Colin Allred out of Texas. Um, The concern about having the governor uh, certify the election and it being what they call conclusive, so that you can't challenge it. So imagine having a governor like Doug Mastriano, who mm-hmm. is now the GOP, yes, the GOP nominee out of Pennsylvania, who was at the January 6th insurrection. Imagine having him override the votes of the people. He's the one sitting on there overriding, saying, yes, Pennsylvania, our electoral votes go to the Republican, uh, even if the Republican did not win the, the popular vote in, in Pennsylvania, because we have these election deniers running for office and there is, there's always, unfortunately, the possibility that they could win. So not having a kind of way to mitigate that, that absolute power. Is, is frightening in this moment that we're in. Yeah. And this
0: idea of fast-tracking judicial review of a governor's decision on electors, doesn't, it doesn't sound like it gives you much uh, comfort. No,
2: no, um, it doesn't. The, the way that it's set up is that it, um, it basically circumvents state courts, Mm-hmm. and it goes after the federal judiciary and and where we have seen many of the remember in the 2020 election where we saw many of the stops to the ridiculous um lawsuits were in the state courts mm-hmm. um and so the we're not seeing the full balance, so they're dealing with some of the things that need to be there. Of course, like the role of the vice president, mm-hmm. um, right. but there, there's so much more tweaking that needs to be done. And I'm hoping that that happens
0: um, on the 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 House and the Senate floor as they as they kind of each uh, yeah. work the legislation language and have to come to some kind of an agreement before it could head up to yes. Biden's desk, yeah.
2: You know, and, and uh, frankly, what we really need to do is to get rid of the Electoral College.
0: <laughs> ah, and, and you better say why. Oh, because
2: it, it does not reflect the will of the people in an American democracy. We have had presidents who have not won the popular vote ascend to the White House based on the Electoral
0: College and not based on the popular vote, it seems like the challenge to that, Professor Anderson is it relies on legislation that would have to be approved by at least part of you know the the members of Congress who have benefited from it. Mm-hmm. You know some of them are in power, whichever side it is, Republicans or Democrats, because the electoral college decisions worked for them. So how do you, you have to somehow put self-interest aside to get Congress to seriously consider this? Or is there another way?
2: You know, and, and, I, and I'm wondering whether, you know, at first you thought that the January 6th insurrection basically shook folks out of their comfort zone, out of their, mm-hmm. their, their cushion where, you know, the craziness and the evil that he does does not affect me. Um, and so you heard that, but, th- but initially, but then folks backtracked into their, their cocoon of power, um, where they believe that it doesn't affect them. And it's like, what will it take? Um,
0: what will it take? Carol Anderson is my guest on this special edition of Big Books and Bold Ideas. We're talking about some of the deeper history and the contemporary history of the Voting Rights Act. It was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson, Martin Luther King Jr., and Vice President Hubert Humphrey looking on 57 years ago this summer. We're talking about it because the U.S. Supreme Court is taking up Two cases in the fall that come right at the Voting Rights Act and the way we vote. And so Carol Anderson is here to put this into some context and give us some history and give us her views of what comes next. She's a professor of African-American studies at Emory University, and she's the author of the acclaimed and award-winning book, One Person, No Vote. If you haven't read it, you should add it immediately to your library and read it. It Is it... Uh, Professor Anderson, is it too, I don't know, simplistic to say that you see the genesis of some of these more contemporary strategies and tactics to disenfranchise voters of color as a backlash? And, And it's a backlash to the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012. Too simplistic or are there seeds there that you look back to and what do you think?
2: Oh, I, I, I see the, the roots of this thing. Um, and clearly the election of Barack Obama, if you recall, uh, when Obama was elected, there was this kind of, I would say joy in the land where mm-hmm. folks were like, woo, we have crossed the racial Rubicon. Look, we have elected a black man, a black man to the White House. Wow. We have overcome. <laughs> but. That kind of joy actually masked what was going on, because what that was saying was that the majority of whites who voted voted for Barack Obama, and that's not the case. In fact, the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964, since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. And so you ask, how did Barack Obama get to the White House if he didn't have the majority of whites voting for him? And that's because he had an incredible ground game that brought to the polls millions and millions of voters who had never voted before. They were overwhelmingly African American, Hispanic, Asian American, the young and the poor. That would become the hit list for these voter suppression techniques that we see today. Um, so we have to take something like voter ID. Voter ID sounds innocuous. And that's one of the reasons why this stuff works so well is it sounds innocuous and it sounds necessary given the massive rampant so-called voter fraud that, that, that plagues American democracy. That lie of voter fraud is, is, is a lie, and it's based on the fear that somebody is stealing something precious from good, honest, hardworking white Americans. And so that's why you see the language of voter fraud being
0: targeted at the cities. Well, I was, I was going to ask you whether, given what you've just said about some of these strategies, whether there, whether you have the sense that there is a a kind of cohesive and – often effective um, scheme that is shared by some of these states that look at what you've just said, who was activated, who voted, what the results were. And, you know, it it's kind of a blueprint for if you've got this problem in your state, Texas, Alabama, you know, wherever, mm-hmm. um, this is how you come at it. Or is it, I, I'd like you... I, Take the, the bird's eye view and tell me how you see the way these, these uh, approaches spread.
2: Uh, there is a group called the American Legislative Exchange Commission mm-hmm. or Committee or something like that, Council, and ALEC. That's and, ALEC, yeah. Yeah, and ALEC works with state legislators. In how to craft legislation. And so this is why it looks like a blueprint that has a, a regional tweak to it, you know, a, a, a state tweak. Um, so that's why you see this massive spread of voter ID laws after the Shelby County v. Holder decision. Um, where the, the, the Help America Vote Act, which came out in the early 2000s, had in there, that states could require voter ID and they could use a range of things such as utility bills and, and, um, you know, birth certificates and these other sorts of things. By the time we get to the post Shelby County v. Holder voter ID laws, we've got this massive constriction. And so that it's government issued photo ID. Mm -hmm. but then it's only certain types of government-issued photo ID. So Alabama said you must have a government-issued photo ID to vote, but your public housing ID does not count. Now, does it get more government-issued than public housing? (laughs) But because 71% of those in Alabama in public housing are African American, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund found that for many of them it was the only government issued photo ID that they had. It was a way to remove them from access to the ballot box. And so you've got the, the ALEC works with these state legislatures to craft these laws and that's why they they almost look like blueprints that they're, they're just um and then you just tweak, okay, I need to add a, a piece here, I need to remove a piece here to deal with their own kinds of um the, the regional vagaries. Um in North Dakota, for instance, uh that state legislature passed a voter ID law that said you must have a physical address for your government issued photo voter ID photo ID to vote. What that did then was because 61% of indigenous people in North Dakota live on reservations, they don't have a physical address. That's the way by doing those kinds of tweaks, knowing who your population is, 71% in Alabama are in public housing, public housing ID doesn't count. Mm Sixty one percent of indigenous people in North Dakota live on reservations. We're going to add a requirement for a physical address. Yes.
0: Before I ask you about, let's say, the top two key provisions that a robust Voting Rights Act should have, I want to play one more piece of sound from 1965, uh, I've been reading a lot of the coverage and watching you know, old newsreels from that area mm-hmm. about what supporters believe that the Voting Rights Act would do. We have the benefit of hindsight, right? Mm-hmm. So here's President Johnson in a phone conversation with Martin Luther King Jr. as Johnson is rallying political support for the bill. And he's telling Martin Luther King Jr., how he's doing that and what he thinks it will mean. Let's listen.
1: It'll be the greatest breakthrough of anything, not even except in this 64 Act. I think the greatest achievement of my administration, I think the greatest achievement in foreign policy, I said to a group yesterday, was the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But I think this will be bigger because uh, it'll do things that even that 64 Act couldn't do.
0: Professor when we played the words from President Lyndon Johnson about his optimism and then his excitement that the the act had passed you said you listened to it with a certain amount of sadness again we hear we hear this like sense of we are overcoming the worst things that we as Americans have seen and that is disenfranchising some of us do you do you hear that and think if they'd only if it only could have been even more visionary or they got what they could what i'd love to hear the context of you hear martin luther king in that sound saying yes i mean he's agreeing with the promise of this what what didn't work about what they were so enthusiastic about what they were passing so we have to go back a bit and forward a bit. Okay. So
2: um, going back a bit, I'm going to take us to Reconstruction after the Civil War. And what we didn't have was basically what I call deconfederalization of the United States. We didn't say what the Confederacy was fighting for. White supremacy um, was wrong. Instead, uh President Andrew Johnson... um uh, Basically, pardon created amnesty for many of the Confederate leaders. They took over control of the states again. We built statues to them to honor them, and so we we had textbooks that basically was this lost cause uh, that the slavery wasn't that bad. These folks were noble, so we didn't root out like we like with denazification the the evils of white supremacy. And so you see that coursing through right after the, the passage of the Voting Rights Act. You had South Carolina joined by Georgia attacking the basic constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act. Then you had Mississippi and Virginia coming back, attacking the Voting Rights Act, saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, you mean that big stuff like poll taxes and literacy tests. We're just doing simple little things now, like um, creating... Um, at-large districts and uh, making positions that had been uh, elected positions, now making them appointed positions, like school superintendent. And that Supreme Court came back in, in 66 and in 69 going, uh-uh, uh-uh, no. This is for the, the, the subtle as well as the obvious uh, attacks on voting rights. But then our Supreme Court changed. So that's why I'm talking about the, the, the past is we didn't deconfederalize the United States. The forward is the changing, the changing, um, composition of the U.S. Supreme Court that kept, that kept on till we got to Shelby County v. Holder chipping away at the Voting Rights Act. And, and then you see subsequent decisions that deal with what, well, as I talked about, punting on extreme partisan gerrymandering, um, creating a new standard for discrimination, uh, to determine discrimination with the Branovich decision out of Arizona. The, the, the role of the Supreme Court in dismantling American democracy, just like it did uh, after Reconstruction is a powerful tale to be told about what we need to do.
0: Well, then let me ask you this before before I get to this, a more robust Voting Rights Act question. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the U.S. Supreme Court right now is made up, that conservative majority, many of those justices are fairly young. They're going to be on the court, presumably, for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think the long-term effect of the Roberts Court decisions will be on voting rights in America? Uh, They will be as horrific as Shelby County v. Holder.
2: Um, I say that Shelby County v. Holder will go down in history the same way that Plessy v. Ferguson has, as a decision based on ideology, not based on law, as a decision that did enormous damage to the United States of America. So when you heard Lyndon Johnson talking about how he thinks that the Voting Rights Act will um, be a major, major, um, basically coup for Mm -hmm. the United States, particularly in foreign affairs, what he was dealing with was that this was the height of the Cold War, and it was so hard for the U.S. to be the Jim Crow leader of the free world because one of these things is not like the other. Um, the Soviets consistently looked up and said, oh, you want folks in Poland to vote? Well, how about the folks in South Carolina can vote? Mm-hmm. What do you think mm-hmm. about that? Um, and so being able to, to remove that barrier to democracy that allowed the U.S. To, to more vigorously talk about its role as the leader of the free world, the pieces that have been put in place through disfranchisement, so that after the 2013 uh, Shelby County beholder decision, remember we had the 2016 presidential election.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And black vote, and we had a, a, a series of voter suppression laws that came through. From, from Alabama and Texas and Georgia and Florida and, and North Carolina and, and in Wisconsin. Um, and what this did was black voter turnout went down by 7% in 2016. The result of that, you know, so you had pundits talking about, well, black folks just didn't show up because they just weren't filling Hillary, because, you know, she's like Hillary. <laughs> you that could was just, the
0: analysis, yeah.
2: It, it really was, right? You could just smell the misogyny coming off of that. <laughs> but, but what didn't get looked at was that this was the first ele- presidential election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And as these states... As 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 the Fourth Circuit said about North Carolina, targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. When we look at what the destruction of the Voting Rights Act did, it led to the presidency of of Donald Trump, and the kinds of of not only domestic woes but international woes that that led to. When we don't treasure our democracy, when we don't treat it with the kind of care that it deserves,
0: we all pay. We all pay. Okay, one last question then, and, and this mm-hmm. flows right from what you've just said. If, if you could stand at the shoulder of the people who were writing a bill that was a, a, a more robust new Voting Rights Act, what would be the top two things that you would say this has got to be in there? I don't want to hear about political expediency, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you, have <got> to, <laughs> you have got to write this into any law that is going to seriously enfranchise American voters. What, what would those top two things be? Ooh, it would be a rigorous
2: pre-clearance um review hmm. that had um that had current uh analyses of the the jurisdictions efforts uh dealing with discrimination so Pre-clearance worked. It worked. Um, and, and looking at the ways that these states get really it, – it, basically, it's the old Mississippi plan where you can say we don't want black folks to vote without writing a law saying we don't want black folks to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's being able to look at – looking at the data, looking at the language, looking at the, the totality of the history of this place. So that the, 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 the critique that the standards were old and, and worn out about what discrimination looked like. So
0: that doesn't happen again. So um, you come right back after that Supreme Court decision on preclearance and say, put it back into law and mm-hmm. make sure that you're looking at the reality of the environment in which we're, we're living and voting in. What would be the second one? The
2: second one is that I would I would have, as the old one did, basically federal electors in there Mm -hmm. to to ensure that shenanigans were not happening um, at the ballot box. I worry about the descent into political violence that this nation is is on the edge of. I worry about the encouragement of of violence against election workers um, uh, and and folks at the polls. And so I would like to have a real protection via the ballot box um, for those who are exercising
0: their right to vote. Carol Anderson is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University, and she's the author of the acclaimed and award-winning book, One Person, No Vote. Professor, thank you very much. It it is always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Uh, Thank you. I have
2: enjoyed this immensely.